0: Good afternoon, welcome to the Edinburgh Book Festival. I'm Peter Guttridge, I'm a journalist and author, and I'm delighted to welcome my three fine writers to this event. Um, Stella Duffy in the middle there is a writer, an actor, and shortly to be a BBC Four TV presenter. Um, she's been longlisted twice for the Orange Prize, once for this book, The Room of Lost Things, which she's going to be talking about today, but I'm sure we'll talk about other things too. Uh, on her uh, right is Rog Glass, whose uh, second novel, Oh, which I'll just pick up here. Um, Hope for New Boys is just out. He'll be talking about that. Uh, he spent three years as uh, Alistair Gray's uh, personal assistant, and he's got a biography, of, an unusual biography of Alistair Gray coming out later in the year, so perhaps more of that later if we've time. Uh, William Sutcliffe, to my immediate left, has written five novels, the latest of which, Whatever Makes You Happy, is about men who won't settle down and about the mothers who are going to make them do so. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Take notes! And I think the mothers are sitting here in the front row. (laughs) Um, They're each going to do a short reading uh, and then we're going to have a chat, then you'll have a chance to ask questions of course and then they'll be signing copies of the books in the book tent over there. Please welcome our guests again. And Rog, we're starting with you I think.
1: Okay. Hi everyone, my book has two voices. And this is the first. Welcome, and thank you for answering the call. Starting tomorrow, you will receive information about Hope for Newborns, an organization designed to help you repair your own damaged life and the lives of others. Send the word yes in reply to this message, and wait. It's time for a new beginning, CC 2004. Freedom through kinship, wealth through understanding, love through sacrifice. Some things you don't forget, some dates don't slip your mind, some memories linger in the mind, eating you up cell by cell. On the night he found out about mum's affair, dad began to feel less guilty about his own. He set things in motion, without permission, sitting each of his three sons down on the barber's chairs that very night and explaining the situation as he saw it. Mum gambled on him not having the courage to kick her out, saying she'd given up her life for him. She could have done great things. Most women these days do. Did he really appreciate her so little that he'd end their marriage because she'd spent a few afternoons in the arms of a kinder man? Well, yes. Though our house was too small to have missed any of their arguments, he argued his case to us as if we knew nothing. Like we should have been covering our ears for the last six months out of respect. After a brief explanation of the situation as he saw it and a business-like summary of the reasons he would not have his family's finances ravaged by lawyers who wanted to turn us against each other, Dad said, Now, gentlemen, there is a choice before you, and you must understand that choices are very important things. Make them with certainty, or else risk falling into the murky ravine of Chamberlain-like appeasement. Understand? Not understanding at all, we nodded. Chuck and Philip were nearly 14 and I was 12, but at that moment each of us felt much younger and very afraid of our father. He was a lot stronger then, and that threatening bite in his tone turned us into obedient little boys, no longer savvy teenagers with an answer for everything. Good, he boomed. So look inside yourselves, boys. Be brave and speak your minds. Your mother and I are going to be living separately from now on, because she is a whore without respect for this family. She will tell you different. She will accuse me of awful things. She'll be clever with words, but don't you listen to her. He sighed, pacing the shop floor. Still, worse things happen. There's no great drama in the business. We must be able to adapt to changing circumstances. You must each elect who you wish to reside with during the week from now on. You will see the other parent twice a month on the weekend. This probably won't go on too long. You'll be grown up soon. And we should not presume to live long, either. That is unwise. Now, Charles? He turned to my eldest brother, who jumped out of his seat and made the military salute. When Chuck moved, I noticed I was frozen still and could not understand why the prospect of moving seemed like the most frightening thing imaginable. It was all I could think of. What's your choice, boy? Said Dad. Charles, almost in tears as he spoke, said, If it pleases you, sir, I'll live with Mum. I think she needs me more. Dad flinched. Philip, he said. Philip got up and stood beside his twin. The same. Dad breathed in long and slow through his nose, then let the air out even slower through his mouth. Good boys, he said. You have proved yourselves to be men. I'm proud of you. And you, Lewis? What do you have to say to your father? I thought of dad working alone in the shop and how empty it would be without anyone to work with. Brush up the hair off the floor, take the money, remove customers' hats and coats, then give them back. I stared up into his stern face, challenging us to make the same decision as my brothers, challenging me to make the same decision as my my brothers, asking without asking whether I was made of the same stuff. I was overtaken with fury at being the youngest. Boyish tears filled my insides, but thank God none could get out. Better to keep them down. Tears were cowardly, un-British. I tried to think as clearly as Dad needed me to, look into myself and see what was there. Some small voice told me it was unfair to leave him. Though he was the sturdier of the two, no person should have all three of his children side with their mother in this situation. Should they? I reached down into myself to feel something for him, though it didn't seem like he was able to feel anything for me. He drew closer, shaking, shivering, breathing in short, sharp stabs. I could no longer see the whites of my father's eyes, only their brown centers staring me down. There was no deviousness there, no trickery. It just hadn't occurred to him that there was any hurt but his own, everything in his world. Sadly, I stood up as straight as I could and spoke in the most confident voice I could summon. Dad, I want to stay here with you. When I returned to my room, another of Christie's essays was waiting for me. The others hung proudly on my wall in order. They usually arrived when she'd been having a bad day and just need to let go for a while. It was her way of doing it. Instead of banging her head against a wall, or getting drunk, or starting a fight, she got on the computer and put down her rage. She said her essays were for everybody at Hope for Newborns, but I suspected that at least a few were for my eyes only, and I felt I was seeing a layer of Christie that nobody else could. We were concentrating on one thing, focusing our energies for the greatest effect, but Christy saw much more. She saw the world as it truly was, and only I understood that. These essays were the evidence of it, and I loved them. Here was one more. After understand your nation and reject it. After reclaim currency for the revolution. After fight pornography with fire. After all history is a prelude to nuclear disaster. After 10 days to save the rainforests. After history is written by the most efficient criminals. Do something every hour to apologize for your ancestors. Today's punk is tomorrow's prime minister. We're all fiddling while Rome burns. Sport is the real opium of the masses. White penises are always the enemy. Fashion strangles us all. Supermarket shopping equals defeat. Swearing is the laziest way to shock. The internet should have freed us, but we're all still prisoners. The only human response to poverty is action. Homophobia still rules Okay, Travel the world and build a well wherever you go. After the past gets bigger every day, one day will swallow us whole, after every child born in the West is a spit in the face to the East, after all religion is racism after the black man is a chauvinist too after a ten page three part opus on man versus woman as God versus the devil and finally after fellatio is slavery one more communication entitled know when the time is right and act was much shorter than usual, it read like this don't send the word yes, don't send anything at all, get out and change something big. Don't contact, t- don't contact me until you've done it, and have the proof. Thanks very much.
2: Can we just look at how good these new shoes are? <laughs> I really recommend the House of Fraser sale. Uh, I'm a deeply serious literary novelist as well, but I really recommend the sale. Um, 19 quid. (laughs) Well, exactly. There you go.
1: How much were they originally?
2: 75. Wow. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) So I planned what I was going to read, and then I chose. had another idea, but that will only work if I can find it. Um, Okay, I won't. I'll read the one that I was going to read. There you go. Um, this is my 11th book, and it's the first one that I've written about where I live. People always say, write what you know, I think they're mad. It's really hard to write what you know, because what you know keeps changing. You walk out into the street, and because it's real, not fiction, you go home, you go, oh, I've got to get that in as well! And then, and then you go somewhere else, and because that's real, not fiction, you know, and every time, personally, every time I saw something more that was real, it made me have to go and do another draft. Uh, Other books have taken me 18 months, two years. This one took five years. I'm now writing a historical novel set 1,500 years ago that no one knows anything about. (laughs) Um, This is about my bit of southeast London, uh, where my mum was born, where I was born before I grew up in New Zealand and got this accent, and um, that I really love. And one of the reasons I really love it is it's a proper village community. Um, There's nothing wrong with Hampstead and Islington if you can afford it, and if you only want white neighbours. But personally, I l- love a proper village, um, where there is a real mix of people. And one of the things that I talk about a lot in this book is the, the mix of foods that you can get from the mix of accents that are selling them to you. Um, in this novel there, it's, it's about a dry cleaner. He's the protagonist, but there's several dotted characters, and two of them are two guys who live on the street, on the street corner. They're called Dan and Charlie. I named them after Dan Leno and Charlie Chaplin, both of whom lived and worked around the area, but no one knows that unless I tell them. <laughs> I thought it was one of those deeply meaningful things that everyone would get, and no one even knows who Dan Leno is, brilliant musical star. Anyway, these are these guys, they're not Dan Leno and Charlie Chaplin, they're just the guys who live on the street. Dan loves summer. He spends the early mornings walking over Myatt's fields, where the grass, unwatered, is following the daffodil's descent to biodegraded dust. Dan has not always lived in South London, but for a long time this has been his home, these streets, this land. He stops on the centre of the ground and looks around, a small flock of seagulls has taken over the flat patch, bordered on either side by rubble and turned into handmade hillocks. He watches watches the birds and thinks how far they've come. It's years since Dan has been to the seaside, an age ago when he took his wife and three sons all the way to Cornwall for a family break up to the west coast of Scotland, on one of the first ever package holidays to Marbella. Sun, sea, sand, and a row of hotels identical in size and shape to these squat Loughborough estate flats, their view of warm water, not cold harbour lane. He listens to the squawking, screaming seagulls, eyes closed, waiting, waiting, until he hears the undertone of tide and then, arms flapping, mouth wide and cawing, he runs into the centre of the flock, an enormous bird, 50 times their size, rising on the wings of his dirty grey coat and an early bird can of strong cider. By the corner. A mother distracts a little girl from the sight of the crazy man, wishes again she could afford to leave London, and hurries the child along to nursery with a little arm tethered by the edge of its socket pulled up and away by the adult hand that has to drop off her door to get to the tube, go all the way across town, hopefully beat the Archway post office queue before she joins the rest of her works in the office at of Wesington. <laughs> it is a perfect morning. <laughs> but only for Dan and the seagulls on the wing. An hour later, Dan is back on the sofa at the edge of the railway arch. His cushion has sunlight. Charlie's half is in the shadow of the old brick arch. They will move their placing in time with the sun. Dan likes light, Charlie prefers a cool shadow. This is a different seat than the one they had in winter that was eventually taken by the council. Frost and rain having rendered it beyond rehousing, useful only for the dump or for Charlie and Dan, the dump one. Fortunately, the two men are homeless, home free in an area of active recycling. The streets spinning out from the junction are full of houses that have either been divided into flats, ready for students and nurses and other transient occupiers, or are in the process of recreation from old houses into new homes for first- and second-time buyers. These homes are on the lower end of the ladder, but they have good-sized gardens, lovely wooden floors once the carpets are stripped out, as they invariably are and they make fine stable rungs from which to reach up, so much so that every second Saturday, Charlie and Dan could refurnish their corner from the pieces left on the street by their fellow citizens. Desks with drawers off their runners, a television with good sound, but no picture, new batteries still taped into the remote. Half a dozen mother-made jumpers taking up too much room in the summer wardrobe, a good pair of men's shoes, bought for a funeral and now too sad to wear again. This is City Recycling no need for a landfill site. Things left on the street in the generous knowledge that someone else will always find a use for any item that becomes redundant. Dan could not find another use for himself when he became redundant, when he was made redundant at 51. Neither husband nor father were enough, and a property and a life ladder that had seemed so easy to climb in his 20s quickly became a spiral snake's nest with no handholds. Now, The seagulls benefit from his inspired team-building techniques, and only Charlie knows of Dan's remarkable fluency in several European languages, and even then, only when the beer has the better of Dan's tongue. At 10.30, Charlie's asleep in the shade and Dan is settled on his end of the sofa, mid-morning sun, sol, sole, sonne, soft on his grey coat, rubbing his aching knees and smiling down at his feet, blistered but lovely, inside the beautiful, almost new, funeral shoes. Thank you.
3: Hello, Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm gonna do a little reading from Whatever Makes You Happy, which is uh, a book that came out earlier this year, a few months ago. And I should probably explain, it's the first book I've ever written that kind of has a a comedy premise, I suppose you'd call it, a comic premise. Um, Which was an interesting thing to try, and um, so before I read to it, I should probably explain what the premise is. I'm not sure if the book makes any sense, if you don't know, really. Um, It is explained in the course of the book, but I'm not reading from the beginning of the book. So, it's basically, it's a novel about mothers and sons, adult adult men and their mothers, which I think is a very under-discussed or maybe over discussed, depending on your opinion. It's the kind of secret, a relationship which is so important to society and to people, but adult men are very embarrassed to talk about their mothers and never admit to it. And this is about three mothers from a suburb in North London who all met at the nursery school gates when their children were of nursery age. And these children are now in their mid thirties. The women are still in the suburbs, they're still friends. And all the sons are a bit feckless and they haven't settled down. And all these women want to be grandmothers and one day they're sitting around moaning about their sons and one of them suggests that they just go and move in with it, go and visit their sons and say, I'm staying for a week, I'm going to find out what's up in your life um, and what's happening and why. Um, so that's, that's the premise of the book. Implausible, maybe. <laughs> Horrific, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, this is um, describing the scene when one of the mothers, Gillian, goes to visit her son, Daniel, who now lives on his own, sadly, in Edinburgh. Um, Not that there's anything sad about Edinburgh. I live here myself. (laughs) I I like it here, but uh, he happens to be, sadly, on his own. Anyway, um, there is a window of truth in all relationships that exists in the fraction of a second between opening a front door and composing a polite response to an unexpected visitor. The more alert you are, the greater your chances of drawing the curtains over this window before anyone gets a chance to look inside. Women are swifter than men, Sociable men are quicker than unsociable men. The happy can move faster than the unhappy. This but Daniel in the slowest category of all. (laughs) For a full second, at the unexpected sight of his mother on the doorstep, his face betrayed sheer, unadorned dismay. That's a nice greeting, she said. What's a nice greeting, he finally managed. "Uh, I haven't even said anything. Gillian had already walked past him into the flat and was unbuttoning her coat in the living room by the time he finished speaking. She held out her coat and scarf without even glancing in Daniel's direction. She was looking around the room in the manner of a policeman at a crime scene. (laughs) Daniel took the garments and tossed them onto a chair. What are you doing here, he said, returning to the living room. I came on impulse. Impulse is 400 miles. I'm your mother. Distance has nothing to do with it. But why didn't you phone? I told you it was a sudden impulse. You still could have told me you were coming. Julian's gaze suddenly latched onto the novel splayed open on the coffee table. What's that? she said. It's a novel. Do you want some tea? I can see that, Daniel. I'm not stupid. So why are you asking? What's it doing there? Are you reading it? I mean, is that what you were doing just now? That's your evening? Yeah, it's good. This is worse than I thought. I need to sit down. What's the big deal? You're 34. Yes, it's Saturday night. So, you're single. I am aware of that. And you're sitting at home on your own reading a a novel. What's wrong with you? I mean, have you given up? Is that it? 34 isn't young, but it's not old. It's too early to give up, isn't it? Tell me you haven't given up. (sighs) Do you want tea or not? Of course I want tea, and I want to know why you're sitting around like a pensioner when you should be out there finding yourself a nice girl and getting ready to give me some grandchildren. (laughs) Grandchildren, here we go, said Daniel, walking to the kitchen, closely followed by his mother. It's not a lot to ask. So ask Rose. Don't worry, I ask her every week, but I don't see why you should get off so lightly. Whatever you say won't make any difference, Mum. Nagging does not make people breed. (laughs) 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 he He flicked on the kettle and began searching a high cupboard for some biscuits. What did I do to get such selfish children? before I've even spoken my own son tells me nothing I can say will make any difference you have spoken Mum. you've spoken plenty I've never met anyone who's managed to stop you speaking every woman disturbs to become a grandmother it's half the point of becoming a mother in the first place oh so we're just machines to make you make your grandchildren no not machines but you do have a job to do yes Mum. Your life is your life, my life is my life. It's up to me to... That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) What? My life isn't my life. Of course it isn't. Well, whose is it then? (laughs) I don't know, she said, but you're not just here for you. You are here to... pass on the flame. (laughs) Daniel slammed the cupboard door, abandoning his biscuit search and turned back to his mother. What flame? If we were all just here for ourselves, life would be pointless. Life is pointless. Don't be ridiculous. Lemon, not milk. Uh, uh, I don't have any lemons. Typical. What does that mean? Why is not having a lemon typical? It just is. Me, me, me. It's your whole philosophy. (laughs) Uh, I didn't know you were coming. Exactly. What? You didn't know anyone was coming. No one is coming. (laughs) That is my point. No one coming. Just you in your little world, me, 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 with your little books at home. Little books? What do you mean little books? It's not little, and even if it was, I don't see what that would have to do with whether or not I've run out of lemons. Well, if you don't understand, I can't explain. (laughs) Gillian felt a prickle of sweat on her upper lip and swiftly dabbed at it with the side of her thumb a nervous tick she had acquired in the last few years as her body's thermostat had taken on a wayward and unpredictable personality. She was feeling tense and uncomfortable, sensations which invariably manifested themselves in Gillian as aggression. She didn't belong here. She had no place barging into Daniel's life like this, and with a 400-mile journey behind her, she was giving him no choice but to take her in she had already spent half an hour in the car outside pondering the idea of turning round and driving straight back to London, but the longer she sat there, the more confused she became until she realised that she'd lost any capacity to make a rational decision about what to do and was no longer even thinking about the problem. She was just sitting there gazing into space like a mad person. It was the desire for a cup of tea that had eventually driven her to (laughs) ring the doorbell. At the moment she pressed the buzzer, she suddenly and decisively knew she was doing a bad thing. It was wrong to force herself on her son like this, but she'd buzzed. Now she just had to brazen it out. Thank you.
0: Um, three very different novels as you can see and we're not going to strain to make uh, to make links I want to ask you all the same question to begin with though Which is really what were the starting point for these novels? What was the starting point for you Stella?
2: Um, our dry cleaner my, my missus is a playwright and he'd been to see a play of hers and um, He said to me the next day when I went to pick something up or drop something off he said You should write a novel about dry... He said one of you should write... I stole the idea, basically. I got it before she could make it into a play. He said, "Um, you should write about dry cleaners. We know people's secrets. (laughs) Yeah, I did that. Um, I did that, and then I carried it around with me for about a year, thinking what kind of secrets. And for a week, he actually kept stuff that people had left in their pockets. Uh, There was... I mean, he gave them back. (laughs) Not all of them, though. Um, There was a wrap of something, not that I'd know. Um, there was a half a, a little bag of grass. There was a couple of Christian um, pamphlets. There was a notebook. There, were, uh, there was letters. It was so, just in a week. And um, so, so the whole point of The Room of Lost Things is that this character uh, keeps stuff for over 40 years that people have left in their pockets. And he uses that to tell the story of the people and the area. And it came from somebody telling me it was a good idea and he was right.
0: <laughs> that was great. What about you? Uh,
1: mine came from uh, a, a year of immaturity uh, after my first book came out, which I thought was a revolution that would turn the world upside down. And it turns out that people politely and well rec- politely received it well. And I even got a good review in the Daily Mail, which I've um, been, my- been brought up to believe was, <laughs> was really the end of, well, Of <laughs> this is really the end of everything. I realise that's a bit melodramatic now, but it was politely <laughs> and well received and many of the things that I thought I'd written about weren't the things that people had said. And, um, because that was my first book and that was a lifelong ambition to get a book published before I died and I realised I was still alive, I'd have to come up with something else to do. <laughs> um, and so I did the, the very worst thing that you can do, which is to react against the way that the first book has been received. So then I thought, right, what I have to do is something far more extreme. Um, and so I, I, I wrote 50,000 words of trash. It was really terribly awful. Um, and uh, it took me about a year to do. And it started with um, uh, two people being locked in a room for a week. And I realised there weren't very many dramatic possibilities for that. <laughs> um, but that took me some months to discover. The good news was, I kept the title, which I really loved, and the name of the main character, and one paragraph from page 29. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm, I'm, That's not really a joke, although I suppose it is funny. Uh, <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you'd have been writing it for a year, you wouldn't have laughed. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and, uh, and I realised what I should really be doing was to take the things that I thought that I'd done well in the first book and try and build on those and try some new things too. And my first book, No Fireworks, was about Jewish identity and I really wanted to do something. As um, an Englishman having been brought up partly in Israel living in Scotland, I wanted to do something about Britishness I went and used the word very advisedly, having lived here for a decade, um, and whether it exists and whether it means anything. So then the idea of this um, barbershop, which is a homage to everything that the family thinks is great about Britishness with Winston Churchill out the front smoking a big fat cigar in a Jeep in Berlin. Um, and uh, and I took it from there, I suppose. Okay, that's great, thank you.
0: What about you, William?
3: I'm, I'm tempted to say that I went to the dry cleaner and he told me I should write a novel <laughs> about mothers and sons, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's not what happened. Sadly, my dry cleaner isn't much help. Uh,
2: my dry cleaner is also Adam miles Jones's dry cleaner. No, Adam Mars
3: Jones? Great that writer. His idea. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I think it might have been the fact of having a child myself actually that gave me the idea for this book. When you have a t- child and you realise it's the first time you ever, maybe the only men think this, but it's kind of the first time you ever re- realise that you're a baby yourself, really. And it's the first time. I mean, I think it never really occurs to men that they've ever actually been through that phase of life, and how much parenting at <laughs> that stage of life is one-way traffic. And you begin to think about your own parents in a different way. I don't know. All generations in your family suddenly shift. You can suddenly realize that you were once this baby. Your mother was once this mother. Who's who's, and you see a wife being a mother. And anyway, I think you think about your life and generations in a very different way. And I began to realize that the relationship between adult men and their mothers is just completely absent in our culture. And I think for most men, um, for most. Adult You see, that's what went off my head when I had the idea. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think for most men, whatever choices you make in life, even if you get married and have children, your mother will probably remain at least the second most important woman in your life throughout your life, and yet you just never see it. You never see it on film. You never see it on TV. You very, very rarely read about it in books. If you're watching a film and some guy calls up his mother, that screenwriter's shorthand for, this guy's a bit of a loser, look, he speaks to his mother. And I think that's actually completely wrong. As you, as you can see in the book, I'm not, I think relationships between an adult and the mother can be very complicated and frustrating. And there's a big generation gap and it's hard to understand each other. And it's a generation gap that I think is at its largest bef- just before you start breeding, I think. I think once you have children, it kind of brings you together again. So I think having moved on to the next phase of life myself, I began to think that the phase of life that I'd just left, when you have least in common with your mother, and suddenly st- struck me as something worth exploring. Mm. Okay,
0: thank you. Well, I was intrigued when, when I started your book because I thought it was about a dysfunctional fam- family, to which to a degree it is, but then it goes off in a totally unlikely, well not unlikely, but totally unexpected direction. I'd like
1: to cut in and say I've never met any functional ones. <laughs> I don't, in my, in my in my opinion, it's not a book about dysfunctional family. It's just a book about families. When people talk about dysfunctional families, what they mean is families with difficulty.
0: And I think all are. No, that's fair. That's fair enough. But I mean, did you, having had the trouble with the with the other book you were writing, did you know where you were going to head with this one? Did you sort of map it out in some somewhere? Um, I, yeah, I
1: knew what's going to happen on the last page. Uh, and And that had been very useful to me in the in the first book as well, having a point to get to it doesn 't necessarily matter how you get to it then then you have the freedom of being able to try things out and be surprised and um, and use your imagination, which I suppose as a fiction writer you really should um, but i I knew I knew what was going to happen in the very very last scene um, the The book is very much about these two characters that do not meet for most of the book, so I knew that they might meet at the end, in some way, um, and that helped, but I didn't have anything else.
0: Yeah. And, and Stella, when I, when I read the blurb of yours, and, and yeah. the, the, about the relationship between these two guys, I thought, is, is this going to be about racism, which, I to a little bit it is, but not a degree it is, but not really. I mean, how
2: did um, that develop? I, a bunch of things happen. My, my dad died when I was only 25, but my mum died five years ago, and I don't think I could have written this book, which also has a, a, an older mother and an older son relationship. Um, he's in his 60s, and uh, he would have been in his early 60s when she dies. And they've lived together because they've shared the shop. Um, he also has a family. But I, I agree with you completely, William. I think I think the, the stuff about families really interests me. In all of my books, even when I was writing crime novels, there's still family at the core of them and i think that you know that's what we all understand even people who weren't brought up in families know that they they've not had it you know it's an in- intensely human experience so um i what i think happens with these two characters the older guy robert is selling his shop to a younger british muslim guy and um i p- two things happen one was that i was so sick to death of every single one of my writing friends as well. Um, every time I turned on a TV program that a mate had written or picked up a book that a mate had written, there was yet another bloody Muslim you know, young lad making a bomb. Well, we've had six of them. That's it. We've had six. Six blokes have been done for it, killed themselves. That's the, uh, as many young Muslim activists as we've had in Britain that we've proved did anything wrong. And, I, really th- and I, really, I work every year with the National Youth Theatre. And a lot of these young guys, they're Iranian, they're Iraqi, they're second and third generation British, they're Pakistani. They are getting stopped on the tube two and three times a day. And I think we're really breeding a generation of young men who are feeling disaffected, and it's partly our fault. So I really wanted to write a young Muslim guy like the ones I know, a perfectly ordinary British young Muslim guy. My, my wife's Indian Jewish so her experience too is being British but not British okay. and it really interests me that what, what is British but not British so he's there. Robert is kind of a father figure to him and, and the whole a lot of it's full of South London stories that I probably couldn't have written if my mother was alive because she used to fictionalise a lot of her stories anyway like for most of my childhood I thought that my grandmother was from Glasgow but in the last 10 years of her life, my mother was saying she was from Edinburgh. And you know they're not <laughs> the same, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so I th- and I, a lot of my mother got into this book, but, but obliquely. They're not specifically her, but the tone of her. And I don't think that would have happened if she'd have still been alive.
0: What about for you, William? I mean, you said you had this, this high concept idea, this mm. premise which mm. uh, for, for a comic novel. Uh, there's often a danger with comic novels that, that you, you end up, if, if you've got a premise, you end up with caricatures rather, rather than mm. characters. Was that a, a worry for you?
3: Yeah, it was actually, because I've never started with a plot before, really. I've usually started with a place or a vague notion or a set of characters or something. And it's interesting, it's a completely different process. But I kind of think that that's quite good as a writer, because you want your books to be. In a way, you're stuck with the personality you've got, and that affects a lot of what you write. And that's this kind of, that's your working kit in a way. And in a way, you can't get away from that. But I think you want to you do as much as you can. And sometimes you scrabble around for it, you might find a new tool you've never used before. And I think one of the ways to encourage that to happen is to try and use a slightly different process each time. I don't mm, know if either of uh, you have found, found that. If you just write absolutely. in a different way. Going
2: from writing crime to writing. Literary novels in inverted commas because they're all just genres after all. Um, and writing theatre stuff, I completely agree. We only have mm. ourselves to mm-hmm. write from mm. and our own experience and whatever anyone else might tell us. But you know, it, and it is fiction, imagination, but it only comes from you. And so th- yeah, the playing around with it and playing around with different styles is, I think, yeah. great and it, really exciting. It, the, the marketing people don't like it so much, but um, it's good for us.
1: Yeah, because if you don't if you don't play around, you just you simply repeat yourself. Yeah. If you're not making an effort not to, you'll find yourself doing exactly, this, exactly the same things.
3: I think the, mar- um. the marketing people do like it when you read <laughs> yeah. yourself. Yeah. They but like it. The, trouble is, the <laughs> trouble is, I think okay. you have to be a very good writer in, some, in a different kind of way to repeat yourself and do it well without boring your audience mm. and, and yourself. And what I f- find very hard, I, th- I think, is that, um, I don't know, I don't have any desire to repeat to repeat mm. myself, and I think your first, and in a sense, the only job you have to concentrate on as you're writing is to actually enjoy it yourself, which in some ways, it seems a bit self-indulgent, but my experience, in between every book I publish, there's something else I start on and inevitably chuck away, and it can take up to a year, as you found, or
0: sometimes <laughs> less, and I'll
3: always kid myself, I'll come downstairs one day, saying, but oh, my wife, brilliant news, I've started with it, and this time, it's good, this time it isn't a false start. I've gone straight from one book to the uh, next one, this time I've got start. away with it, I, and um, it, like, yeah. she'll go, well done, and then like, <laughs> two weeks later, it's in the bin, and I've started something else. I
2: did 40,000 words of that in past tense, oh. and then realised that was the wrong tense. I mean, talk about you know tricking yourself into doing something differently. Mm. I then had to go back and rewrite it in present tense. And that's not just find, exchange, was, for, is. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, it's not. And, you know, I think it's really normal to do 50,000 words of something and then go, yeah, oh, That's very, very comforting. <laughs> uh, in a way, it's not, because
3: it, like so it means it'll it happen 10 more times yeah. if you keep on writing.
2: But save it. Uh, do you really throw it out, properly throw it out? you've uh, No, everything's recycle. on my yeah, hard drive,
3: yeah, yeah. It ends up on the back <laughs> of the next rug. <laughs>
1: That's not true, you're lying to people. You're, you're giving the impression but that you're, you're taking
3: real pieces of paper and ripping 29 them up. Mate. And <laughs> I've actually yeah. no. Yeah. I've actually never gone back to anything there. Once it's in the bin, it's in the bin. And I kid myself, yeah, okay, one day I'll go back to it and find something useful. And I think that is the point when you're Work is really going badly when you start going through the think, <laughs> What did I do five years ago that I thought was terrible? Is <laughs> actually really good, and start going through all. One day that may happen, but it hasn't, it hasn't come to that yet. Mm-hmm. Though there are a few rejected ideas that I'm still, I still daydream about, and I have kind of what if moments. I also,
2: th- I think we get better, hopefully, touch wood, as we go along. And so, you know, I've learned from I've worked with three different editors with three different publishers. I've learned so much from each one of them. I've learned from other writer friends I l- these sorts of discussions. So hopefully, there might be an idea that you rejected that in ten years' time you'll be more in a place to work yeah, with it. Yeah, you're you more know.
1: able to. Wri- yeah, writing's a, a, s- a skill that you develop like it's any craft, other. And it's, yeah. it's a craft that you learn over the years. And uh, many yeah. of the, uh, unlike some other ar- artistic forms, where usually people break through and are hugely successful at the beginning and then. Popularity or ability goes down. I think as a general rule writing is different to that and that many of the best writers Here's a huge generalisation coming up. Many of the best writers in the world (laughs) are older and have written many books and have learnt and got better (laughs) as they get older Um, Quite right. Popularity usually goes up over time and and uh, an ability does too and you start not being able to write at all and not really clear what you're doing and then hopefully you learn skills. So you must be ambitious mm. about improving yourself, you must mm. try new things or else then you can only go downhill. How did I get away with that generalisation? It's good, it's good. But <laughs> <laughs> so right.
0: what, what about the notion that most writers, however many books they write and however much better they get, they still always address the same small number of themes?
1: Um, I, I uh, combated that this time by writing two books at once and one of them was a strange biography. And I think if you, f- if you make yourself do things that are very different that you've never done before, then you can't repeat mm-hmm. yourself. thoroughly you can't. No, Although, I, I don't know, I've had
2: people say to me that they've noticed things that I didn't know that... I mean, like me saying I write about family, I mm. didn't think necessarily that in the crime novels I had, but then people who've written about them have pointed out very clearly, of course I have. My own personal preoccupation is truth and lies, and that's probably why I started out writing crime. It's all I really care about, as a person as well. And I think that's where all the juice is. You mm. know, the things that we tell the entire truth about, things that we tell some of the truth about, things we actively lie about, very Catholic, the sins of omission <laughs> and the sins of commission. You know, it's, it's um, it, they're all in there. Like, that's the stuff that I think, and shame. That was set, shame. Shame. Shame, well. shame, I love yeah. shame. Yeah. Shame is such <laughs> a good emotion <laughs> to write
3: about. But I think in a way there's much more, there's more to a book than what's on the page in a sense that it has to be created and the creative process can't be guessed at from the text in a way. So there can be two books that might be very similar by the same author, but they could have been arrived at in yeah. a completely different way. Yeah. And you can't tell from reading a book whether an author... I mean, you, cause you really don't necessarily start at the beginning and start writing forwards from the beginning. You can start with a senior mission. You can write 50,000 words and end up with one paragraph that's on page 29. Or Good you can paragraph. start with... <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to look at it
2: later. <laughs> Work out which
3: one it was. Or you can have a... Pa- so I think in that way, and I think that's one way as a writer, even if... The, in a way, your first job, before you, even before you worry about repeating what you're writing, to keep your, is to, to try and make your job different. Because in a way, it's always the same as sitting there every day at your computer writing. And to make the act, just by making the activity different, even if in some way you start with a different activity and then you might somehow coalesce towards something that, that is on the same old obsessions you've been talking about for years and years.
0: And, and I mean, can you see thematic threads running through your five novels that you'd admit to?
3: I honestly don't know actually, it's weird. I think in a way it's easier for, for readers to, to, gauge, to gauge that than, than writers because I think in a way spotting those things is quite unhealthy. Because the next time you're writing something, you think, "Oh God, I'm settling into this rut that I've done, I've done before." I don't know about you guys, but I actually try once I've written about, it, I try kind of try and put it out of my head.
2: Um, it's really hard when you're doing lots of events. I I've, I've had a brilliant year in terms of doing events. Not so great for writing the next book, but which keeps going back to this. But I did start writing five years ago. I mean, I did write another book in between and a film script and a couple of plays. But I did. This has been going for a long time, so it's quite hard. I found it quite hard, as I've been writing my new book this year, coming back and doing events for this book, which I do love, but I'm reading from this book and talking about this book, and I'm well, you know, I just finished the first draft of the next one. And that's quite an odd mix, I find. Mm. I'm sure there are writers who'd go, that's all done now, I'm never going to talk about it again, but I don't think they have my desire to sell the books in the same way, maybe, <laughs> or maybe maybe they already sell millions, so they don't need to do events. I don't I, know. I don't
1: really want to forget. <coughs> I don't really want to forget it once it's finished and written because I write partly for people to read. Um, and partly. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have I revealed something no, in myself? No, only only <laughs> partly? You, you only partly you write
2: for people to
1: read. I was responding to what William said before about. You know, ultimately, you write for yourself. Oh, I in the see. End. You? And I don't, um, I don't entirely feel like that. I do, w- I do want to be read, and there are um, ideas um, and things that I want to communicate. And so, actually, this this stage of things is a really important part for me, and it's something I really enjoy and really want to do, because um, I'm amazed to find that I'm proud of my books by the time they come out, and uh, and want to communicate what there is in them, and want to talk about those things and. For me, that that's really where the life of the book starts, and um, even though, Although, don't you? Even if
3: they worry that way. Madness lies. There's the school well, of authors who, well, sure uh, does, who check. I'm there's, I'm the, there's always the danger, the risk, the desire to check where you're on Amazon every day and things like that. And I think, <laughs> oh, and I've that is that somehow, that. That. somehow managed. Somehow <laughs> managed. No, I think, some th- I think they're different. I think they're different
1: things. Um, there's a, a long way between checking your name on Google morning, noon, and night, and um, wanting your books to be read.
2: There is, but I, I, I have to say, and I've said this before and pissed off writers, so I might well be going to piss you off, I think if you want offended. to change the world and touch people and communicate, you really don't do it by writing books, you do it by writing EastEnders. EastEnders, <laughs> just, yeah, I know, I know. But no, Let me explain, EastEnders is watched by millions and millions of people. Look at us, we are a fairly generic, homogenous, Probably middle class-ish white group of people. EastEnders is watched by the world. I'm Truthfully, much as I would love this book to be read by nine million people, and I want to communicate things too, I just don't think that book writing gets to enough people.
1: It does sometimes, but I'm, that, that first of all doesn't offend me in the slightest. So <laughs> we're cool, we're cool. Then. It's fine. <laughs> um, I think, as b- a
2: bunch of crime writers, I'm really <laughs> made angry by saying no, no. that. No, I
1: th- um. I understand what you're saying, and yes, most of the time that is the case, but I, in the same way as I think it's important to be ambitious about the quality yeah, of writing yeah. and, um, and uh, yes, about the quality of writing. Also, you must be um, ambitious about being able to um, write things that are going to be meaningful, be meaningful for people or that they can find meaning in. Yes, not everybody gets to write Animal Farm, but you can all reach for it. Uh, And that's what I mean, I don't mean um, number one sales or a certain amount of numbers or changing people's opinions, no, not at all, that's not the way I think that art should work, it's about how every person responds to the same thing differently. I just mean that it's important for me to be able to communicate and my writing is partly a way of doing that, I don't want to be in a long dark jacket facing the corner of my room rocking backwards and forwards and saying it's all about me. I, 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 I want the, my life to be the opposite of that, and I want to reach for the opposite I, I'm going to have to interrupt with sense? that image.
0: I'm going to have to end <laughs> with that image for the moment, just so we can get some questions in from the audience, Indeed. if that's okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh oh Do you, yeah. you got a question? Can you stick your hand in the air and wait for the microphone? Which I think I've got. So <laughs> I have got it. Anyone got a question? I hope you have, because I've just interrupted this really interesting conversation. <laughs>
2: are about
0: to kick off about it <laughs> I, tell you what,
3: I can say something about questioning which is Go relevant ahead. to what you're gonna say which is I went to see Louis de Bernier three days ago and I was interested in this point and I actually put my hand up and asked the question and I and I and I said to him because he he was on stage talking about his new book and he had about four or five questions that were all about Captain Corelli and I put my hand up and said you know do you ever feel like your past this kind of overshadows everything does it ever feel like an albatross and basically, he said no, but from his tone of voice, I'm sure he meant yes. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Exactly. That's my theory. So, as in, uh, that apropos of whether you look back or look forward, I suppose. That's yeah, all I mean. yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Is there a question? The doors are locked, you're not allowed <laughs> out until. <laughs>
2: I'm interested to know what publishers can teach you. You mentioned, Stella, that you've yeah. learned something from each publisher. Yeah, uh, well, from each editor, absolutely. Um, my, the editors I've worked with on my crime novels for Serpent's Tale, on my um, literary novels for Scepter, which is Carol Welsh, and my literary novels now for Baragu, who um Antonio Hodgson have all taught me stuff about story. As a performer, uh, I started out in theatre, and I really care about story. I don't necessarily mean narrative arc. I mean story, the guts of something, where where we're moved to follow it, um, and by truthfully and trying to quite undefensively read comments back or have those lunches where they tell you what they don't get and what doesn't work for them, which I find very difficult. I like. I now have learned. I go away for three days and I don't think about it and I don't argue back straight away, and I let it sink in so I can hear what other people are telling me because. Other people count too, as you say. They're readers. It's not just about here's my perfect book.
1: Do you go through the five stages of grief when you get feedback? <laughs> <laughs> anger, an- anger depression, de- denial, yeah, denial, denial, absolutely. and then finally acceptance.
2: acceptance yeah. uh, oh my God, you probably do. Uh, I, you know, and I, I learned that through working with an editor with my first books, who was incredibly tough who actually in my second book, he'd done a great job in my first one, and I really trusted him and I'd ne- n- you know, not done a book before and I'd never expected to be a writer and I was so pleased and proud and, and I got my second manuscript back from him and, it, and literally it was things like, you're boring me now. <laughs> Do you really mean to say this? And I was in tears and, and he, he said, I thought you could take it and I said, I could take it if you'd give me a page about what was good first. Um so it's learning to hear what's good too. It's learning to hear what people like as well. So that's that's what I've learned to take other people's opinions. Not to write by committee because I have tried to write for television and that's a very different thing. But to listen to what they have to say.
0: William, you have got a view on
3: this? Um yes, I completely agree. I've I go through that process with every book, but it's rare. it hasn't usually been my editor who's been the person doing that but I think it depends on who your editor is Mm. and what relationship is and also what kind of publishing publishing's
2: changed a lot Mm. in either I've been published for 14 years now editors did used to have more time 14 years ago even only 14 years ago editors had more time to read books to give you feedback there's less time
3: now. That's why they're called editors, but they don't really edit, no, they actually they buy. don't edit anymore. <laughs> but you do get a couple, a lot of people don't realise, you do have a copy editor mm. who goes through the manuscript, and the editors don't do this at all. I've never actually had a line by line, page by page thing from any editor, but you get a copy editor who goes through the whole manuscript, marks up the whole manuscript for you, and with kind of this is a terrible terrible secret that I think that, was, that just stupid things like spelling, punctuation, repeated words. Repeated and so like she had black hair on page twenty and she's got orange red hair on page fifty. Okay. And the, and that actually I found that copy editors are incredibly skilled. Mm. And a good I copy think editor's just brilliant, really.
0: But actually Raj, in, in the acknowledgments at the back of your book, you, you almost suggest that your novel's a collaborative effort.
2: You've got lots of people helping you in this one yeah.
0: Yes, I
2: have.
1: <laughs> um, none of it is my work, really.
2: <laughs> I'm just extremely
1: good you. at drawing <laughs> favours out of people. No, it's it's a point of principle. The way I put the acknowledgements, I put on the back of my novels. A novel is a joint effort, and on the back of my and bi- the front of my biography, a biography is a joint effort. By that, I don't mean nine of us sit around the computer at three o'clock in the morning and go, "Is that a repeated word?" But <laughs> Uh, I, by which I mean many things come together to get a book published and those, that could, that's everything from the initial idea to who you go and chat about something with uh, on an afternoon and they'll say, oh I saw this thing on the bus and that reminded me of something else. And um, just as Stella was saying about receiving good ideas, I think that's also part of a writer's job. To be, you, you judge it in the end, what's to be used and what not. But um, there are many, many different stages of things mm. that go through. And you know what? And the face that your that your partner makes uh, on reading the first part is as for me has always been far more important than mm. uh, to say what an editor has to say. And then, like you say, there are many many uh, filters that the thing goes through, and copy editing is one of them. I always give my work to a few other writers and then take their opinions seriously. But it's not because. It's not a weakness that you don't know what you believe in, it's to help you work out what you believe in. And if somebody mm-hmm. says to you, I hate this bit and here's why, then you will instantly, I will instantly know whether I really believe in that bit or not. And I, because I'll either have an answer for it or I won't. Mm. And it's the same from doing, I've done readings from this book um, a number of times as it was being written. And it's partly by reception, but that's not because I want to be loved and if people don't laugh where I think they should laugh then I'll take it out, it's because it helps you work out, work out what is right for you.
3: Yeah, it's true. I think you really have to know how to take advice and you also really have to know how to you reject, reject it.
1: advice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah.
2: I've, with this book, um, and with all my books, I've given them to different people to read as they went along, never before they're finished, because that would, I think, be horrendous. But um, in fact, there's some friends in the audience today who, who read this at a quite early draft just because I trusted their opinion on it. and and. They gave great feedback as well. Thank you. Um, and uh, but they're different friends than I would ask for another book. And I think it's really fortunate to you know to have friends, to have people, to to have people you trust. What in is that the, like? Oh, you know, it's marvellous. brilliant. But you need to have published more than two books to get friends. Yeah. They come with your
3: third. Oh, I've got yeah, that to right? coming out soon. I'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> you do need a certain kind of friend, though. Yeah. You need a really good friend who will actually say to you, "No, this is shit," oh, you need a really and won't be afraid that, that you will take anyway. you'll take it again. Yeah.
2: Manuscripts are heavy and clunky, and
3: but friends that will say to you, "Yeah, it's good," without meaning it. Yeah, no, you don't. So you want can't that. show no. them those aren't the friends. Book, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> That's another question.
0: <laughs> ask the question
2: that you're going to ask when you come and ask us to sign a book that you want to ask privately. Ask it in public. Right
0: at the back. back
1: Hiya. Um, If Stella thinks the world's changed by EastEnders rather than writing books, why does she write books?
2: Um, Because I like writing books and because I haven't been able to yet sell anything to the telly. Do you want Um, to write for EastEnders? I don't particularly want to write for EastEnders. I don't mean EastEnders per se, I mean the things that are seen by loads and loads of people. Um, I haven't watched EastEnders for years so personally no, but for example, as a gay woman, the gay relationships that were shown on things like EastEnders and Coronation Street did make differences in a way that no amount of beautiful writing by Oscar Wilde did, sadly. You know, um, our seeing mixed races, mixed classes, mixed, mixed ethnicities and, and financial um, barriers broken. In TV programs, sadly it's all now gone to reality telly because it's so cheap, but those things have been really important to our culture, not necessarily to everyone's culture, but it's, it is a very British culture thing. Um, and I wish I wish it was different, but it's not. So, it's not that I haven't tried, but TV's a scary beast.
0: I mean, did you agree with what, with what Stella said earlier about EastEnders being the, the way through?
3: Um, I don't know, I don't know what. I don't, I don't personally. I don't know why would you want to change the world. Not that the world oh, is perfect, but yeah. I just think if you want to change the world, there are so many jobs that involve, y- you know, youth work or yeah. getting. Made, I think jobs that get your hands dirty are, are what changes the world in a in a small way. And I think writing, full stop, isn't generally for I, people I, who really. I want to agree, the world. but
2: I haven't stopped wanting to change the world. So, like, I wanted to change the world when I was a teenager and very political, and I still am very political, just not a teenager. So in the work that I do, I still want to change the world.
3: Mm.
2: But I don't, I'm not saying that what I'm doing is the best way to do it. Mm. But I haven't stopped having that burning desire to make things better and to have an equal society and, and to not live in a place that's racist or homophobic or sexist. You know people talk about post-feminism, we don't even have feminism yet, you know, we've still got more women, you know, underpaid compared to men, even in wealth, in the wealthy West. But I, th-
3: but I think the whole question of popularity is a sort of a knotty problem as well anyway, because on the one hand, the more you reach, the better, but that's not necessarily true, but on the other hand, the minute that becomes your yeah, goal, absolutely. you start making compromises, because you only need to look at the bestseller list, yep. or look at what people watch on telly, to probably think it's not very not very good I mean often they're doing what they're doing in their way They're, they're succeeding on their own terms Mm -hmm. I think but if that's not what you're interest if that's not what you're interested in then pursuing popularity is is dangerous and though I think everyone has a certain every writer I think has some of that in the back of their mind and we all to different degrees either listen to or ignore that voice, but when I'm listening to that voice, is when I feel most ashamed of myself. <laughs> <laughs> the one that goes, She was the only one that laughed. <laughs> 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 Maybe I'm the only one who
2: got it. She <laughs> feels quietly.
1: the same. I said, so, so I chuckled quietly. That
0: <laughs> right? Sadly, on a quiet chuckle, we have to end this. About event. Our, about
2: our secret shame.
0: <laughs> um, can I just before I ask you to thank our, our guests, can I ask you to stay in your seats when I, I usher them out, so they can get to the signing tent and be ready for you when you come to buy all their books? Um, thank you for be, for coming, and thank you for being such an attentive audience. But please thank for a really stimulating conversation, which could clearly have gone on all day. Our three guests. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.